This week on New Mexico in Focus, reaction from Indian country to Deb Holland's historic confirmation as head of the Interior Department. I mean, you hear it a lot, representation matters, but you could feel it. You could actually feel it. Plus, setting the stage for the issues that will define the final hours of the 2021 legislative session. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. The state practically stopped on Monday afternoon as Deb Holland made history, becoming the first Native American to serve as Secretary of the Department of the Interior. She's also the first Native American to serve in any presidential cabinet. We'll get reaction to her confirmation from Indian country as well as our line opinion panel. The line will also talk about what's passed so far in the 2021 legislative session and what issues are racing the clock. And we'll catch up with Jonathan Goldstein of the Environmental Defense Fund as we continue to gather thoughts and opinions about President Biden's climate change plans. But as usual, we begin with the line in the last frantic hours of a one-of-a-kind legislative session. Hey, happy Friday one and all as usual. My name is Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And this is the podcast edition for New Mexico in Focus on this Friday March 19th, 2021. You may be able to hear how tired I am in my voice. It has been a long week for journalists and for lawmakers in the state for sure, with the frantic finish to this 60-day session that has been unlike any that any of us have ever been involved in with the virtual nature and the public not allowed in the roundhouse and a heck of a lot of Zoom committee meetings, floor votes, you name it. And there is a lot still to be decided in the final hours before noon on Saturday. That's tomorrow. A whole bunch of things that still uh, weigh in the balance of the last hours. But there's also a lot that is already made it through. And so we're going to kick things off, as you heard Gene mention in that preview, right there with the line opinion panel. We've got a special group with us this week, mostly former lawmakers. We've got former Senator Eric Griego. Uh, former Senator Diane Snyder, and also Dee Dee Feldman, also a former senator, also joined by Merritt Allen of Vox Optima. It's great to have Merritt here because one of the things that is up in the air as we head into the final hours, or at least when we're recording this, is redistricting reform. And you'll recall there was a task force set up last year by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham to look at a way to do this more equitably, fairly, transparently, and less partisanly. And that has struggled in this session. There are still two competing bills, but really only one of note, just given the time left. That's Senate Bill 15. That just needs um, a final vote. And a lot of folks say amendments uh, to do what the redistricting task force set out to do. It's already been changed several times, but there are still concerns about consultation with Native communities, about how redistricts, uh, redistricting goes about, how the maps get redrawn. Of course, this is something we do once every 10 years after the census count. There's also still concern from those who want to see reform about transparency and how involved the public is in these decisions, how much of a say lawmakers actually get in the redrawing of boundaries, and how much partisan information goes into 
those redistricting efforts. Senate Bill 15, again, is the big one. There is a House bill that would have to have a miracle to get through because it still needs several committee hearings and is not yet out of the House. And so all eyes are on Senate Bill 15. But as we mentioned, there's a lot that has passed. We basically have a budget. Uh, I believe it just needs some agreement between the two houses, but they are basically there on that. We also have uh, a medical aid and dying bill that progressives were really pushing for, along with the repeal of the abortion ban that has been something that's been going on for a couple years. Um, We also have liquor license and rules reforms, which have been 40 years in the making. Um, We uh, have got a lot to talk about. Some of the other things that are still up in the air, predatory lending reform, which there uh, is a lot of progress there, but there does not seem to be agreements on some of the differences between the House and the Senate. That's headed to a conference committee. And of course, all eyes and ears, as they have for most of the session, are on cannabis legalization efforts that uh, may be being heard right now or uh, debated in the Senate, the full Senate. That's the last hurdle there before any concurrence with the House and then moving on to the governor. Uh, That is... Uh, priority number one for a lot of lawmakers, and so there will be some action on that. What, how, how it ends, we're not sure. Also, paid sick leave, which did pass out of the Senate last night, with some changes. We will see how that falls out with the House version as well. But let's dive into it all now with Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. Here we go. It's not unusual for the action to come down to the wire at the end of any legislative session, and 2021 is no different. As we tape this week's show, there are still huge issues yet to be decided and a handful of historic measures that have already been signed by the governor. Here to help us break it all down is our line opinion panel for this week, starting with regular and former state senator Dee Dee Feldman. Senator Diane Snyder is back with us. She's also, as I mentioned, a former state senator and is used to this sprint to the finish line in Santa Fe for sure. <laughs> Rounding out our trio of former lawmakers is Eric Riego, who also served in our state Senate. And we will get back Merritt Allen. She may not be a senator, but she does own Vox Optima, a public relations firm. Thank you all for joining us this week via Zoom. Senator Feldman, as we are talking right now, here are just a few of the proposals that hang in the balance Cannabis legislation, early childhood education funding, tax and redistricting reform, mandatory paid sick leave, the list goes on and on. Do any of these issues risk just being lost to time? Let's start there. Given how much of it is left, what are you afraid of of getting left off? I think they're all at risk of being defeated for the lack of time. And the process is such that each one of these issues is uh, subject to a filibuster Ah. at this point. And so a filibuster on one brings three others down. So um, that means that the leadership has got to prioritize uh, which ones of these are the most important. And and remember that there are hundreds of other bills besides just the ones that you've mentioned uh, that are equal, that are important to certain constituencies and actually may have to be enacted in order to access federal funds or comply with uh, a law. So um, this just brings to my mind the absolute uh, influence and control that committee chairs have during the last week of the legislative session. 
if you delay a bill in a committee, like a, like a judiciary committee, for example, um, that means the uh, chances of not just the bill that you are delaying does not get passed, but it also completely jeopardizes the 100 other bills that are in your committee on your agenda, and also the, um, the 80 other bills that are on either the Senate or the House floor. So this is born of a process that really uh, does not give enough time for thorough consideration of legislation. We could tackle that on another show, uh, the idea of how to do all this in a, in a, in a session. Uh, Senator Grego, let's go right to HB 12, the recreational marijuana bill. We just might as well go there. Pass out of Senate Judiciary early Thursday morning, as we all know. But the chairman, Joe Cervantes, says the bill, quote, is still not ready. And I sense an epic showdown on the Senate floor. What are you, what are you sensing? Yeah, as we tape this, it is not on the Senate agenda uh, for Thursday. So... Uh, when, when this airs on Friday, it will likely have been scheduled, but there's no guarantee to Didi's point that I think the leadership knows that um, the the most controversial bills like this one are likely to be very, very long debates, right. potentially used as a filibuster by opponents, in this case, of the Republicans. There's two other really important bills that I think um, could be victims of a too long a debate on HB 12. Please. Um, the paid sick leave bill, which is also on the schedule for Thursday. So that that um, that will also be a long, controversial uh, debate. And, you know, uh, some 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 business groups really want to use that to, to hold some other bills hostage, unfortunately, because they, they strongly oppose it. But um, I think folks are hoping that gets out. The one the one bright note, just because I um, as we tape this, it looks like S uh, to HJR one, the constitutional constitutional amendment. To provide funding for early childhood. There was a huge compromise, first time in the history of this bill after 10 years, to, to put some money into K-12 and some money uh, into early childhood. That looks like that's going to pass. So probably by the time this airs, my prediction is that we that will have passed the Senate, which is a massive victory for a lot of folks who've been working on that for 10 years. Long time. Exactly right. Senator Snyder, um, you know, the Senate, I'm, I'm curious your opinion here. The Senate has a new look, as we know, and we've talked about that a lot. And have you noticed the new 11 new members, new committee leadership are all impacting how business is being done. I, I, do you sense something is, is more efficient, it's better? What's your sense of how you know, the new look has, is doing this, this session? I think the new look has contributed greatly to the, as uh, Senator Munoz said, the increased animosity between the parties. Mm. Uh, he, and, and maybe he was speaking only about Senate finance, but I think if you look at it, in addition to all the new members, which makes a difference always, uh, the leadership out of the seven leadership positions in the Senate, only one has prior experience in lead. Well, Linda was actually a part a caucus leader, but they have no leadership experience. I'm sorry, who are you mentioning? And, My fault. I'm sorry, uh, Linda, uh, Senator. Uh, Senator Lopez. Lopez. Okay, gotcha. Had some, but she's the uh, one. She's the whip now. One of the things that was, I think, helped the Senate in past years, whether you like the outcome or not, was the mutual compatibility between the leaders. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in this case, I know uh, Senator Griego is, is happy, and this was part of the turnover. Uh, you had the President Potem, who was dear friends and respectful of, of the Senate. 
Senator, uh, Senator uh, Engel, but you also had Senator uh, Bill Payne, who everybody admired and respected. And then you had people on the Democrat side working. To, I, I just believe you had a better opportunity in those days to reach a compromise or help get a bill for, brought forward than, than it is right now. And I think I, I feel quite sorry for Senator Worth. All of this is being handed to him and hitting on the head with him. Um, and I think he's doing an incredible job at what he's done so far. But I do think that makes a big difference. But I don't think, other than passing the bills, the one, the constitutional amendment for early childhood uh, monies and, and K through 12, is I don't think, I think those kinds of bills, which are now passed because of the change in the body of the Senate, um, there are still people on both sides who aren't happy about that. That's a good point. And yeah. don't, don't feel, I mean, by Senator John Arthur Smith whether you and Senator Mary Kay Pavin, whether you like them or not, they were well-respected. So, um, and it was their voting that took them out. So, but you don't have that relationship right. that we've had in the past. I so I think, I think there's still some animosity or concern probably so probably so let me let me yeah. ask merit let me ask you this redistricting reform another big issue you're involved with this one for sure we still have two bills at play but the front runner now doesn't address everything the task force suggested last year and speaker egolf has been a little less than supportive of relinquishing you know any power in this once uh you know once in a decade responsibility what, what's your sense of where this stands now uh, with sb15 and others on redistricting I think it's very difficult to say. I sat in um, and testified at the um, House Judiciary um, hearing last week, and uh, Senator uh, Snyder's point is, is straight on. The animosity is there. What's very clear to me is the Democratic caucus will not let any um, uh, good governance bill that has a Republican's name on it go forward. And I think it's too bad because um, who's, the, who's, I, the, who's the block there? Is it Mr. Egolf? Is it who? Do you want to name names? Who's block? Who's blocking uh, this? Oh, ab absolutely. Um, I think the speaker feels his hand has been forced. Mm -hmm. um, made some um, unfortunate comments that have uh, uh, come back uh, at him. I think he feels defensive. Um, he took every opportunity uh, to uh, co-brand. Uh, uh, particularly Representative Dow, who's been very vocal in support of redistricting, to co-brand her with um, uh, the January uh, 6th insurrection at the Capitol. If he could um, have images of her and Cooey Griffin with their arms around each other, it would make him very happy. Um, I don't think that's appropriate. Uh, I think it would make a lot of sense to align the bill, the redistricting bill, with amendments to the For the People Act that is in the US Senate right now. Mm -hmm. um, as we were talking before the show, um, it is gonna be hard to get 60 votes in the Senate on that, but right. it is what the congressional Democrats want. It is what seems to be the desire of uh, the New Mexico State Democratic Party. Um, and the, the, the two bills, there's a House bill, there's a Senate bill, Senate Bill 15, uh, still needs to be amended to acknowledge uh, tribal boundaries, mm -hmm. eliminate the use of partisan data in drawing maps, and uh, to uh, be truly uh, 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 neutral 
with regard to uh, to uh, considering incumbents and to, to simply prevent gerrymandering. Uh, House Bill 211 uh, uh, has that language already in it, um, has the support of uh, a large number of uh, both Republicans and Democrats. But uh, to earlier points, this is where committee chairmen become very powerful. Right. And uh, it's uh, doubtful whether it will it will get to the floor. And this is also where it's hard with our very short term uh, part time legislature is what really has to happen in the 21 legislature is a budget and redistricting. Right. And one of those things is at risk right now. That's a good point. Let me go to budget. Uh, Senator Griego, um, as as of this taping right here, as we're doing this Thursday midday, we don't have yet a final budget approved. But it's close. It looks like it's going to be about $7.4 billion, um, which is the number we've been hearing for a while, an increase of about 5%. But most of those increases are federal bucks to handle, you know, pandemic relief. What's your sense of how we've handled, starting with the governor and whoever else you want to bring into this, but how we've dis uh, established and fighting for this particular budget line? Well, you know, the, the one big story is there has been, I think, uh, the Democratic leadership, uh, despite some of the rhetoric you hear from some of the business lobbyists, uh, have bent over backwards to provide aid for small businesses and for the business community loans, grants. A huge part of the budget is is not just using federal aid, but using a lot of state money to sort of backstop all the struggles that local businesses and state businesses, you know, all, all said and done between federal and state money, it's close to a billion dollars that's being given to small to businesses. Um, and that's been contrasted with, with how much of that has been set aside for workers who've been really most impacted on, on COVID, for example. So um, I think the, the, the budget is, is uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a moderate budget. Certainly, there's a huge amount that's staying in reserves. I think some folks would have liked to see more of that invested in helping workers adjust into, to this economy, some additional assistance for families. Um, we, I, we're probably going to talk about the tax bill, but uh, certainly the tax bill could have been much more strong right. uh, in terms of helping working families. There were some victories there, uh, the working families tax credit, the, uh, the lifter uh, to help sort of uh, folks who are struggling in this economy. But, but I think part of the narrative is, despite what uh, the complaints from some, again, from some of the corporate lobbyists, I think that overwhelmingly a huge amount of this budget is dedicated to help uh, businesses through this very, very tough time. And I think there's been a modest uh, increase for a lot of public spending and investments in uh, not just public sector employees, but public uh, investments in things like healthcare. So overall, I think it's a budget that um, I think reflects the chairmanship of the finance committee, which is, you know, uh, let's make sure we take care of uh, a lot of the businesses who will be affected. Um, and then on tax policy, I think we, we uh, could have been a bit more aggressive. I think uh, the tax bill, the tax reform bill 291 was pretty good. Um, but I think we could have we certainly could have asked more from corporations, more from the wealthiest New Mexicans and given more to, uh, capital gains, for example, was sort of really reduced that that tax increase. I think we could have asked more from those who are doing the best in this economy and, and, and tried to help families and kids a little bit more. I have to end that there. That's an interesting last note for right now. We're back in a moment to handicap the field of candidates interested in running to replace Deb Holland in Congress. Yeah, the huge story this week here in New Mexico for sure, but really all across the nation is the history being made by now former U.S. Representative Deb Holland. On Monday, the Senate, U.S. Senate, confirmed her nomination to head the Department of the Interior. That makes history on two fronts. She becomes the first Native American secretary for the Department of the Interior. 
but she's also the first Native American to hold any cabinet-level position in a presidential administration. All eyes and ears in New Mexico pretty much stopped to watch that confirmation vote, which was 51 to 40. And so uh, representation matters. We talk about this a lot, and we wanted to find out a little bit more on a personal level just what that history means for members of uh, Indian country. We have Antonia Gonzalez, our correspondent and host of um, Native America News on Kiwanak Broadcasting, and she talks to business leaders, tribal leaders, uh, youth advocates about what a historic week it means and how Deb Holland will go about taking her Native American values into her new role in the Biden cabinet. Governor Janelle Royball, Stephanie Poston, and Alicia Coriz, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Well, former Congresswoman Deb Holland, now Madam Secretary, mentioned this week that rarely seeing Native women hold federal leadership roles. Well, now that's changed. Uh, Governor Royball, your Pueblo is leading the way with the female executive branch. And as a tribal leader, how does Holland's government position resonate with you? Well, we're excited, you know, Every day within our communities, we continue to strive for excellence, you know, and give everything our all to succeed. And my Pueblo, you know, the Pueblo Puac is so excited to have a, a Native American in this position because, you know, diversity is very important to us and, and having a voice from all ethnicities is a must. So we're all heard, you know, we're all part of the decision making, we, you know, we all face challenges on a daily basis, have obstacles we have to get through to make changes within our respective communities that, you know, technically benefit all of us as a whole. And having Deb Holland as our, our Secretary of the Interior makes us all so proud and, and hopeful for, for great things to come. And Stephanie, you have a connection to Secretary Holland. You helped plan a big event in DC when she first came to into office in Congress. Uh, what was going through your mind when you were watching her being confirmed? Um, it was very exciting. Um, and it was surreal. I, I mean, that whole thing, I mean, you hear it a lot, representation matters, but you could feel it. You could actually feel it and be a part of it. And you could see that she came from humble beginnings, just like us. She came from one of the Pueblos. She comes from Laguna. She um, is a proud New Mexican. And, and it was just a really exciting day. And all of New Mexico should be proud and happy. And what was the response from the Pueblo Youth Council? Okay, so within the All Pueblo Council of Governors Youth Committee, uh, we are a part of the, um, you know, the overarching All Pueblo Council of Governors, which is comprised of our 20 Pueblo nations, each with, you know, its inherent government authority and sovereignty over their lands. And so our, you know, our mission is to you know, advocate, foster, protect, and encourage the social, cultural, and traditional well-being of our Pueblo nations. And so seeing as, you know, the Youth Committee is one of those primary uh, focuses in our communities and just to have a, a really great role model available for us and to see that with, you know, with strength and determination that Pueblo women can rise and overcome the obstacles that we encounter on, on a daily basis. And so it's, 
within that, it's, you know, it's just really, um, you know, phenomenal. And our youth committee is actually comprised of all uh, Pueblo young women. And so it's really great to have that, um, you know, uh, what we lovingly call Auntie Deb, uh, you know, available for us in the Secretary of Interior and, um, you know, also just another Pueblo woman uh, on their rise to leadership. And Secretary of Holland does carry her Pueblo knowledge. Uh, why is that important, uh, Governor? You know, that's what we grow up with. So it's not something that goes away. You know, we continue on with our younger generations, teaching them. And and if, if we didn't have that moving forward and, you know, use that to help us get, you know, our voices out and how we live and our everyday living, I think that that we wouldn't be as far as we are today. You know, I think we've came a long way by by being true to, to ourselves and who we are and letting everyone know that that's how we stand. And Stephanie? Um, as Pueblo people, we're the original stewards of the land. I mean, I was fortunate enough to work for my own tribe, and I think I know that they really take it serious in protecting water and protecting resources and protecting sacred sites. And you just know that with all those efforts for years that perhaps our uncles, our grandfathers worked on that. Um, they stand a fighting chance now with somebody who truly understands um, the meaning of that. And that's not only for our own benefit as Native people, um, that sort of protection, um, that commitment to preserving lands will benefit all of the globe. And is that the same for young people? Yes, of course. You know, um engaging within our communities, we can certainly see that our community is linked through intergenerational teachings. And so, you know, not only with each story comes, you know, you know, cultural um, revitalization, but continues to carry a teaching along with it. And so certainly with, um, you know, Representative Holland or Secretary Holland, um, you know, carrying that knowledge along with her, we can certainly see that it will help to provide some strength and guidance within the coming obstacles that sh uh, she will have to face in her new position. And so I, I strongly believe that, um, you know, our traditions, our knowledge and our language, of course, carry so much strength and power. And governor, as a tribal leader, um, there is going to be a lot of work to do for Secretary Holland. But how do you hope that she takes a federal approach to tribal issues, especially ones that are so dear to your tribe? she's a very strong lady you know you can you can see that right away and so I think just having that voice representing us and and as everyone else has mentioned you know we all want the same thing it it's not just for us native people it's for the whole community and and I think maybe it's not it's not um taken in certain ways as we want it to be out there and if we don't have that voice there to make that statement, to explain our situation and let them know our struggles and, and what we fight for, then, then we're kind of left out, you know? So now that we have that, that voice there and that support, you know, that's just gonna benefit all of, benefit all of us as a whole. 
there is, like we said, a lot of issues to tackle, um, not only with tribal issues, but public lands and lands and taking care of the land are also important to indigenous people across the United States. And Stephanie, for you as a business leader, a mother, a member of the native community locally, people are gonna be watching the secretary and watching her every move. How do you see Indian country holding her accountable as she goes on to this new position? I think with positions like that, um, you go into it knowing that you have to make hard decisions and sometimes um, they might not sit well with folks. And I think it's important that we know that ahead of time. And, you know, it's taken a very long time to get to this point of having the first ever Native American at a cabinet level. And so allow that grace, allow that patience as she maneuvers and um, makes pathways forward for not only us as Native people, but for the country. And Governor, do you have um, anything to add to that as consultations with the Interior Department and just even being able to have the ear of the secretary and holding her accountable for some of those tough decisions she may have to make. Yes, I definitely can see, you know, us, us having many conversations. We have several struggles just, you know, here in New Mexico with our, you know, water rights, our land preservation, you know, we have historical sites and, and the fracking, you know, we, we want to protect all that land and I think we all have the same agenda right now and so I definitely can see us moving forward in a positive way and and helping each other you know all of us as a group you know staying together and, and um, moving forward as one. I know this week has been such not only history in the making for one of the first uh, Congress women to um, to be in Congress. Uh, there's also Sharice Davids who is in Congress. So Holland made history becoming now the first uh, cabinet secretary, Native American and female. There's a lot of celebration, so much excitement across Indian country for sure here in New Mexico. And I know that the youth count, the youth committee is planning a big celebration. What is that? Yes, that's correct. So, um, you know, in light of uh, our new cabinet secretary, Holland, uh, recent accomplishments, we have, or the youth committee has recommended to our 20 Pueblo uh, governors to help celebrate our new interior secretary. And we, and that will be through a virtual event uh, led by the youth committee, uh, similar to a celebration held previously by APCG when, um, when Deb Holland was uh, or became one of the first two indigenous Congress uh, Congress representatives in 2018. And so um, as of this time, we are in the planning stages. Uh, a resolution will be considered by the council to help initiate the formal process into carrying out this historic celebration, uh, which will include an op-ed uh, sharing to the public uh, the, the perspective of Pueblo youth. We hope to have this open to the public uh, via online platform. And so we also hope to uh, call on our New Mexico congressional delegation to help provide remarks, as well as to uh, provide a space for APCG to celebrate uh, Secretary Holland's achievements. And, you know, of course, in true Pueblo fashion to 
have this be an intergenerational celebration amongst public governors, tribal leaders, elders, youth and community members. And I know everybody is so excited about this uh, historic confirmation and now Madam Secretary and uh, like you said, Auntie Deb, people feel such a connection to her even if they're not from New Mexico. Um, just wanna let you all, thank you all for being with us, but also just to end with um, some messages. Uh, uh, Steph, let's start with you, Stephanie. Uh, what would you like to tell Madam Secretary? Um, thank you for paving the way. Thank you for leaving the ladder down. Be strong. Um, and we know that um, you're gonna do a great job. I would always also want to say, you know, thank you for for wanting to get into that position, knowing what what it was going to be and how hard it was going to be to get in there and what we were going to want from you or, you know, expect you to do for us. I mean, that's that's a lot to take on and we're here to support you and I know you're going to do awesome and and um, we're just so, so humbled and honored to to be a Native American just like her. I guess my message to Auntie Deb will be to uh, first off, congratulations on your recent appointment. Uh, you know, certainly we as Pueblo women see the, you know, limited opportunities we have in order to be in leadership. And so I commend you for taking this, uh, you know, taking the jump to pursue this opportunity and certainly, you know, leaving the ladder down for those to follow. You certainly are a remarkable role model for uh, this generation and the forthcoming generations to come. And so congratulations and we wish you wellness, strength, and as much guidance as you can um, within this position and it's all, all of its decision-making processes. Thank you all for being with us here on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you. We touched on it briefly, but Deb Holland was the sitting U.S. representative for the 1st Congressional District. That is no more. That seat is vacant. And so there will be a special election to fill that seat. This week, we got word from the Secretary of State that that election will happen on June 1st for voters in the 1st Congressional District. But before that can happen, the political parties, their central committees need to meet and uh, choose their candidates and uh, that process is, is unique in a special election like this, partly because of how quick everything moves. There was legislation in the Roundhouse this year that would make that a vote of the public. And uh, doubt that there's time for that to make it through. But maybe in the future, this whole situation when we run into it will be different. It's only happened a couple times in state history. And there are a bunch of folks on both sides of the aisle who have expressed interest, will be gathering signatures to present to their central committees, but we want to break all that down, see who we think the front runners are, what the process is, how it works, what we think about it. So let's do that now by heading back to the Line Opinion Roundtable. Indigenous communities were not alone in marking the historic moment of Deb Holland's confirmation. Nearly the entire state stopped to watch the vote and take note of its importance, and that includes all of our Line Opinion panelists, and Diane, let's start with you. We know that policy-wise, you have concerns with Ms. Holland in the interior, but what did that moment mean to you personally? Personally, mm -hmm. absolutely personally, I was so excited. 
first that she was from New Mexico, two that she was a woman, and that um, she was Native American. All of those came into being. Um, I they, they have all played obviously a big role in my life. And I think she has not, but I do, as you said, have concerns about some of her positions and mm-hmm. things she has advocated for as our Congresswoman. But I remember in the hearing, the committee hearing, she was very clear because she was questioned on this, is that the things that a Congresswoman from New Mexico would advocate for and be very vocal about would not always be the same things and same role of a secretary because she had the responsibility of the whole nation. So I'm feeling optimistic. It kind of touched my heart to see that happen. Um, You know, I don't know why, but it did. And and I hope that, quite truthfully, she lives up to all those expectations that I have of her. And I think there are, I have many friends who feel the same way. We want it to work because oil and gas and extractive industries are so important to us in our state. And I just, I know she has to follow the the, uh, advocacy of the president, but I think she has always, I I like her, I love her saying is about, you know, being brave and what is the word she uses? Fierce. I hope that she is, nicely fierce when she when she knows that the best thing for the country may disagree perhaps a little bit with the president that's a good point that's a good point i've seen her i've seen her act that way Mm -hmm. on other bills whether i like her position or not but i'm hoping that that fierceness will continue to play as she becomes the secretary. I like that. Uh, Senator Feldman, let me ask you this the clock has immediately started of course uh, to replace uh, Ms. Holland in Congress Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver has now scheduled a special uh, to replace her for Tuesday, June 1st. We have a date. The candidates will be chosen by the political parties. A lot of people don't know this, by the central committees. Do you like that process? No, Mm -hmm. I don't. Uh, There is a bill in the legislature now that would replace it with a primary election, but uh, it doesn't have time to pass. Uh, unless it has an emergency clause on it, and that just doesn't look like it's going to come to pass. I want to remind you and everyone that the last time a uh, Democratic Central Committee uh, nominated an insider to run in a special election, uh, they lost. Uh, They lost unexpectedly to a Republican. This happened, I think it was 1998 in northern New Mexico, which is a solidly Democratic district, when Bill Redman uh, won against the uh, Central Committee appointed candidate, Eric Cerna. Um, And it also happened again, oh no, maybe that was, well, maybe that was 99. In 98, when Phil Maloof was selected by uh, the Democratic Central Committee, Uh, He lost to um, Heather Wilson, uh, which I'm sure you remember well. So um, so uh, it's there's a risk uh, at having having uh, nominees selected this way. But it's time is short. uh, And so if you want to make sure that New Mexico is not deprived of a vote uh, for the next several months, 
uh, it's important to do it quickly. Mm -hmm. Senator Griego, you know, nine Democrats are in. I've got a list here. We've all got a list in front of us. One independent and Aubrey Dunn and a couple of Republicans. Let's, let's talk about the Democrat side of the deal. Is, you know, with what Senator Feldman's saying, with a short time period, but you're being chosen, does that give a natural advantage to anybody on that list that you see out there? Normally it would, but there's several well-known Democratic, there's four legislators, three state reps and a state senator mm -hmm. who are like at the top of the heat, um, very diverse. You know, I think the difference between what, what Senator Feldman and Didi said and, and this election is we have some really strong candidates. I have to say, these are folks who are uh, a lot of women of color, really strong legislative records, um, uh, a state senator, um, uh, we have a, a, a the governor's kind of legislative person. So this is a strong, strong field. Uh, no offense to Phil Maloof. I went to high school with him, nice guy, but like he was not exactly our strongest candidate as a Democrat, just to be really frank. And, you know, Eric Serna had a major scandal that, right. that was the real reason that we lost. Yep. So I think for most of these candidates, really strong background, very diverse. I'm really proud that we have this incredible field of candidates because there, there's Several of them who were very, very strong, who, could, who definitely could hold the seat in the mm -hmm. in the in the general election. Um, so I, I I feel like um, you know there's there's a couple of newcomers who I don't think really have much of a shot, but I'm glad they're jumping in. But I think there are no less than five formidable, formidable, serious candidates on the Democratic side. I won't speak to the Republican side because I think uh, I'll, I'll defer to my colleagues on the panel. But I can tell you it's a it's a pretty strong uh, it's a pretty strong field on the Democratic side. Mm -hmm. And all of them, I'm pretty sure, could know that uh, COLA stands for cost of living adjustment. You might remember that from Phil Maloose run. He couldn't, didn't quite get that right, and that was a big problem for him back then. Um, he was a big fan of COLA, though. That's right. <laughs> Merit, Republicans, we got to talk about this. Mark Morris is in. He's super conservative, certainly. Eddie Aragon, the radio host, very conservative. Um, Arby Dunn is running as Arby Dunn, no party affiliation, but from the two folks that are affiliated with the Republican side of the deal, what's your, what's your sense of it? Well, I think uh, Senator Moore's uh, stepping into the race um, really uh, makes it uh, competitive in the general election for Republicans. Senator Moore's has proven electability in, in the Albuquerque metro area, which is what is needed to win this seat. Uh, so mm -hmm. um, uh, Republicans have had a very difficult time uh, picking up uh, well, they've lost on uh, nearly all of their legislative seats. Mark, uh, Mark Morris has shown he can win uh, legislative races in the Albuquerque metro, which uh, the GOP has not been able to do in recent years. Uh, and, and that's what's needed. Is the timing so, right for him? I mean, I'm not trying to be cute here. But I'm saying it might be. Uh, as Senator Feldman mentioned, no one can eat, write off any Republican at this point. So it, 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 does he have the right message? Is he the right conservative at this point? I think so, because um, when you say he's very conservative, I think he's very conservative in a pre-Trump sort of way. Okay. Because there's actual conservatism and there's Trump conservatism, and I'm not even sure what that is. It's mostly populist. It's mm -hmm. a lot of shame. And um, I'm not sure that that's going to play well, in, and particularly it's the Albuquerque Metro that has to be won. That's a good point. Uh, and without a primary, um, you don't really have to get the... The, the loud fringes uh, to carry you over. So 
Uh, if he's looking for the business vote and the business owner vote, who may be reeling from this uh, legislative session with some of the progressive measures that have moved forward, I think that could put um, the general election over to Senator Morris. Interesting. Uh, Senator Grego, we've got about a minute and a half here. There's other names floating out there. I mean, Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller, Attorney General Hector Baldara, State Auditor Brian Colon. I mean, there's a lot of folks that we're sort of, you know, in the media yapping about. I'm not quite sure how serious they are. Do you expect any other big names to jump in on the D side? No, that ship has sailed. I mean, yeah. in the process, at least as I understand it, it's it's way beyond that. Um, and, and none of those folks really, they've all looked at it. Maggie Toos, Oliver looked at it, but I think they've all decided that it's not the right time. And they all have other other aspirations. I think this is going to be kind of a messy uh a messy process, and uh, right. um, but it may yield a really interesting candidate, a fresh kind of a fresh face in terms of uh, uh, someone out of the legislature, or, or maybe someone who uh, who hasn't been in, in elected office. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Let's see what happens with that bill uh, Senator Feldman mentioned. The mm -hmm. next time it comes around, I think the voting public would have a, a much different opinion about how these folks are choose, chosen if they have a chance to get it, get in on it. But we'll be back to take another star stab at this one soon. Still ahead this week. The conundrum of oil and gas drilling here in New Mexico. So far this year, we've had a couple of segments talking to economists about uh, President Joe Biden's climate change actions. One of the big things he did, we'll talk about here in a minute, back with the line opinion table, but he put an indefinite moratorium on new oil and gas permits, uh, leases for drilling on public lands. Uh, but that's just one of a, of, of a lot of things that the president has made a priority. And most of those issues will have a huge impact here in New Mexico. So again, we've talked a little bit about the economic impact. This week, we're going to continue those conversations with environmental advocates, starting with John Goldstein. He's with the Environmental Defense Fund. It's a name you might recognize as well, though. He was the secretary for the Ener Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources Department under former Governor Bill Richardson. And so he knows a lot about, especially the oil and gas industry in New Mexico. He spends a lot of his time and efforts on methane emissions, which come out of the oil and gas industry, and is a target of both President Biden to reduce those emissions, as well as our own governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham. And uh, this fascinating conversation, he points to a lot of examples where we are seeing a bit of a a turning of the tide in terms of clean energy practices and that they are coming from market forces that a lot of folks in the industry are seeing where things are headed and are actually moving that way more proactively now, which I think is exciting for a lot of folks to hear and see. Of course, the trick here still is, is protecting folks' jobs or helping them to transition into the new jobs that will be created. There's a lot of talk and activity about that. We will see what comes of all of that. But for now, let's get some more insight from John Goldstein and our environmental reporter, Laura Paskus. John Goldstein, welcome. The Biden administration came out with an executive order on climate change just days after taking office. A month into the presidency, roughly now, what pieces are moving forward that you think will affect New Mexicans? Well, certainly, you know, there's been a lot of talk around the leasing pause. And, um, you know, that I think, um, unfortunately, a lot of the talk around it has been, I think, in, in an unhelpful frame, not recognizing all the lands that have already been sort of, uh, you know, uh, put 
on the backlog by the oil and gas industry. And I think how, how small of an impact in the short term that's really gonna have as far as you know, drilling activity goes in New Mexico. I think nationwide, there are 13 million acres that have been leased and, and are sitting idle. Uh, in New Mexico, I think it's over 1 million acres um, that are sort of sitting there idle. And so um, I think that that, you know, while it's been getting a lot of attention, I don't think it's gonna have the big impact in the, in the short term that some have been fearing. Um, I guess what strikes me too is that this is sort of the latest macro signal from the federal government and from the world market as well that you know we're starting to really take climate change seriously. And I think it really underlines the importance of the efforts that the state has begun under Governor Lujan Grisham to really get better guardrails in place, to get action in place to cut methane, to address climate change um, on, on the you know, economy-wide scale, um, because it's really gonna be necessary for New Mexico's products to continue to have access to these world and national markets. So Biden also ordered a review of a Trump administration rule that loosened an earlier regulation regarding methane. Do you have a sense of what that review could include? Yeah, I think that, I mean, what we'd like to see is number one, a return to the rules that were put in place under the Obama administration back in 2016. There was both an, an EPA rule uh, for new sources and a rule from the Bureau of Land Management that reduced methane waste from new and existing wells on federal and tribal lands. And those were both you know, important efforts. Um, at the same time, I think uh, most observers expect the Biden administration to take the next step and actually um, strengthen those and you know, uh, get existing source standards in place from the Environmental Protection Agency, for example. Um, you know, a lot's happened in the last four years. So just kind of turning back the clock to 2016 and getting those rules back in place is good, but we also need to you know, reflect all the stuff we've learned in the past four years as far as you know, where the improvements need to come. Can you remind us what is methane and why is that such an important part of this larger discussion? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, so methane is the primary component of natural gas. The gas you use to heat your home or to cook your food is primarily made up of methane molecules. And um, so methane is also a very, very powerful greenhouse gas. Uh, pound for pound, it's more than 80 times more potent at driving climate change in the short term than carbon dioxide. And so what that means is when uh, there are methane leaks and there are uh, a significant amount of them in New Mexico from oil and gas wells, both in the Permian and up in the San Juan Basin, um, when you can address those and keep that methane in the pipes and not escaping out into the atmosphere, um, you can have a significant impact both on terms of revenue to the state, since you're, um, you know, you're collecting your tax and royalty off of that, as well as um, protecting you know, the climate from you know, drought and you know, the kinds of impacts New Mexico is already starting to see. So as I understand it, Colorado has a methane rule that the federal government is actually perhaps looking at as a model. Um, can you talk a little bit about what Colorado has done in terms of methane and what examples there might be for the federal government and for us here in New Mexico? So Colorado's had methane rules in place since 2014. Um, it was the first state in the US to enact rules that was under Governor Hickenlooper. And um, it has, um, yeah, you know, they, they've been uh, successful 
in terms of you know reducing emissions. Um, methane also, uh, when when you're addressing methane at a well site, you're also addressing the forms of pollution that lead to ozone and smog. Um, and so they're also good, important rules from a public health perspective. Um, and so uh, the, the, so the 2014 rules have been good and successful in Colorado. They've also improved them twice since then. They've gone back and continued to raise the bar. And what's been interesting to see is that those 2014 rules, um, they were supported by some members of industry. There were three large oil and gas producers in Colorado that were a part of that and supported those but they weren't supported by the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, the, the trade association that represents the whole industry. Since then, the improvements that the Colorado uh, regulators have made have been endorsed by COGA, um, the Oil and Gas Association. So it's interesting to see that sort of progression. And it, it makes me wonder if you know, there's, there's potential for something similar in New Mexico uh, with you know the, these industry players, like I mentioned before, are seeing how the market is shifting and changing and seeing that they need to um, you know, put real meaning behind uh, reducing their emissions and reducing their impact on the climate and on public health. And so I think you know, the more forward leaning ones are realizing the importance of getting on board with state and federal regulations um, like the Lujan Grisham administration is working on, like the Biden administration is starting to dive into. So as you know very well, New Mexico, um, our economy relies on oil and gas development. How has the methane rule, are Colorado and New Mexico sort of comparable in um, the breadth of the industry, the size of the industry? And has that rule in Colorado, how has that affected um, Colorado's production, Colorado's revenues? Right. New Mexico and Colorado are different. Uh, everybody knows that. Uh, for, for one thing, the green chili in New Mexico is much, much superior to the green chili in Colorado. Um, the oil and gas industry is also a much bigger part of the economy in New Mexico um, than it is in Colorado. So, um, you know, the, the, it is, uh, Colorado has a, has a larger and more diverse economy than New Mexico does. And so that, um, you know, that's important to keep in mind when you're looking at, at these rules. However, um, the oil and gas sector in Colorado, just by itself, has not been adversely impacted by these rules. Um, you know, it, it, in fact, you could argue that it's actually, I think, in some ways, been improved because it's more efficient and um, it has the ability to kind of show that it's, um, you know, doing its part to re to reduce its emissions uh, to these global markets. So. Prior to working for an NGO, you worked for the state of New Mexico during the Richardson administration. And I'm curious what you think in terms of when it comes to climate change, when it comes to economic diversification, when it comes to the future of the fossil fuel industry, how much of a role does state policy play versus federal policy? And do states really have paths forward um, if they want to be taking on sort of these big sorts of changes and challenges? Yeah, I, I think you need both. It's sort of belt and suspenders. Um, and so there's a, there's a role absolutely for strong federal regulation. Like I think we're gonna see under President Biden in making sure that there's a, there's a floor um, that everyone has to, um, has to abide by. You know, for instance, there's a lot of oil and gas that comes out of states that probably aren't at the state level um, ready to act. You know, I, I look across the border to Texas 
um, in that regard. And you're probably going to need the federal regulators to step up if you want to get after you know, the, the problems that exist there. But there's also a role for states like New Mexico and Colorado and Wyoming and other places that have shown a willingness to kind of um, you know, go beyond that floor and to show real state level leadership as well. And so that's what we're starting to see you know, with these um, rules from the Oil Conservation Division um, that are gonna limit venting and flaring. Uh, those should be finalized next month. And then we're watching really closely to see what happens with the New Mexico Environment Department's draft rules um, which are probably going to go to hearing later on this summer. Don Goldstein, thanks so much for joining me today. Great to see you, Laura. Thanks. Touched on it just a minute ago, but uh, we uh, started out the new year and the new presidential administration with an executive order from President Joe Biden uh, instituting an indefinite moratorium on new drilling leases. Uh, for oil and gas industry, and this has to do with public lands, and that impacts New Mexico greatly. Uh, this executive order didn't include existing leases, but it would potentially future leases, depending on how long this goes. And this week, our governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, sent the president a letter asking for some relief and some help here, as it would be devastating to our state economy if the moratorium goes on uh, as it is uh, for too, too long. Again, it doesn't hurt us too bad in the short term because of those existing leases, but long term is another story. And again, it points to, we just got done with that conversation with John Goldstein and market forces and the industry, uh, but also the governor has made it a huge priority to do all we can to remove to move towards more renewable energy sources and create that economic driver to help to stem uh, some of the downsides of moving away from oil and gas uh, for the state budget and for that industry. So it's a tightrope. She is walking, and uh, that letter to President Biden was the latest there. Proactive move on her part, and the line opinion panel's got some great thoughts uh, on um, that strategy and what it means and how well she's sort of walking that tightrope. So we'll get to that in a minute. We also want to point you to a great conversation we had with the line opinion panel before we started our taping this week that relates. It has to do with a lot of criticism of late over cleanup plans from the Department of Energy for spent nuclear waste, especially at Los Alamos National Labs, uh, and points to a longstanding problem where we as New Mexico, um, which has so much of this material from Lanel to Sandia, other places, and yet we seem to be bottom of the priority list uh, even though a lot of that waste is going to get sent right within the state to the Waste Isolation Pilot Project in southeastern New Mexico. Uh, the latest plan from DOE is talking about 30 shipments a year. Folks have done the math. It would take 30 years to get what's existing there transferred. And so our congressional delegation, uh, state lawmakers, lots of folks just think that is not good enough. The state has even filed a lawsuit uh, to try to make uh, or increase the urgency for the DOE on the spent nuclear waste cleanup in New Mexico. So you can find that on Facebook. And if you haven't already, sign up for the Focus on New Mexico Facebook group. We have a lot of great conversations each week on there that really help inform our coverage on the show. But for now, let's head back to that uh, letter from the governor to the president about oil and gas leases on public land. 
One of the first actions President Biden took upon taking office was to issue an executive order indefinitely pausing all new oil and gas leasing on public lands. This week, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham sent the president a letter asking for some relief on that front, although she stopped short of any direct ask. This is the governor's latest tightrope act between moving the state towards more renewable energy sources while not turning her back on the oil and gas industry, which is so important to the state's economy, as you know. Senator Feldman, what do you make of the governor's request? Well, um, she's asking for an exemption. Mm -hmm. She's asking for an exemption, uh, yet uh, the, um, the pause that the president put on the oil and gas uh, leasing had already expired on Monday. So the question is, was really kind of moot because it had already expired. But nonetheless, I think she really wanted to make a statement. Uh, that's what she was doing uh, rather than seeking real relief, which would be very difficult. Although with, uh, now with Deb Holland, it might be possible uh, for certain specific exemptions like Chaco Canyon, for example. Um, but um, I think that, yes, she's trying to walk that line between the oil and gas industry and alternative uh, energy and climate change, which she's very committed to. And her regulations and her regulatory policy has really proven that with controls on methane gas emissions right. and, um, you know, and other measures, the ETA, uh, setting a goal of carbon neutrality, I think it's by uh, 2045, uh, and that's pretty aggressive. Um, and I think she wants to let the Biden administration and the world know that we are pressing forward here and deserve some special consideration. Mm -hmm. Merritt, interestingly, 55% of the state's wells and 63% of overall production are on federal lands. I mean, this is really a serious issue for New Mexico. You know, should we get special consideration here, given those numbers, those percentages? Well, um, again, I, I think uh, Senator Feldman's points uh, about context, um, I don't know, uh, it, it would be nice to get, of course, it would be nice for New Mexico to always get special consideration for everything. Mm -hmm. uh, but the 60-day uh, the moratorium um, has sunset. It has not been renewed. And so uh, it, it's not clear what the final policy uh, will be. Also be noted that uh, the, the existing leases we have are set for four years. So um, it's not like production is stopping. Probably the, a larger impact on the impervium basin has been some of the severe weather we've had. Yeah. That may be impacting uh, impact oil, price, uh, oil prices. Legit, and yep. One of the most interesting uh, bellwethers, if you will, to how uh, there are three states that really um, have the most uh, uh, impact from fracking. It's Wyoming, New Mexico, and Alaska. And Alaska's two Republican senators uh, voted uh, to confirm uh, Deb Holland as Interior Secretary. So I think that's also an indicator that perhaps these Western oil producing states are not as concerned about uh, the Biden administration's uh, fracking uh, plan as the oil and gas industry uh, makes it seem. Mm -hmm. so, um, I, I, I'm, I'm glad, I, thought, I think it was, it was good uh, PR for the oil and gas industry. I think it's important that uh, the leader of an oil producing state in an economic crisis 
uh, show that resolve that she does support industry and she does understand that we cannot do without these revenues right now. Sure, how meaningful it was. Yeah. Senator Snyder, uh, talk about numbers. Our Department of Finance Administration predicts an estimated loss of $709 million over the next four years if there is a 10% decline in our oil production levels. That's a lot of money. In fact, let me give you the quote from uh, our governor. Quote, financial losses of that magnitude could have real impacts on our ability to achieve major goals like universal access to early childhood education. There are serious issues here with this loss of money of this magnitude, isn't there? Yes, there is. Uh, one of the things that concerns me a little bit is everybody keeps talking about, well, the oil and gas has all these leases and reserve. Mm -hmm. Well, they do because you buy ahead. You don't wait till the day of right. and buy. But with that comes when you're trying to get the oil and gas above ground, there are other kinds of leases that you have to have. And the, the moratorium, even though it has ended, did not exclude those kinds of leasing, like roads and access and things like that, uh, into types of equipment that's needed. There were no exemptions for those things. So virtually it did stop what leases are held by the companies right now. I, um, I'm very concerned. I, I admire the governor for asking. Uh, as we've said, it, it's day late and a dollar short, kind of. But I really am concerned long term about what we're going to do with oil and gas. And it's, I, I, I would like to see us, and I always have, and this has nothing to do with our past president, but I think I would love to go back to seeing America totally independent, that we don't have to buy any more foreign oil or gas because we've got the reserves here. So I'm very concerned. I uh, And just as a side note to the uh, fact that the two senators from Alaska voted, don't forget, uh, look at their population and the number of indigenous constituents mm -hmm. he has, mm -hmm. as well as the oil and gas. So I think there was a little bit of play in that as to what the real decision was. So I'm, I'm, I leave this with one thing to say, I'm still very concerned about the future of oil and gas in New Mexico. And therefore, I'm concerned about education. I'm concerned about childcare, all of those things. So I have my concerns. Senator Grego, meanwhile, the marketplace is speaking, meaning uh, folks are pulling up and going to Texas because they have very little federal land there and they can drop a well wherever they want, basically. Uh, is this a problem for us? I mean, when you really think about how much of our land mass is under federal control, it, it, it's a difficulty. You know, I, I think that our dependence and on this industry, um, any credible research, including from the, the oil and gas industry, is this is there's there's a finite amount of time left for us to make this transition. And I know we're used to clinging like grim death to the industry. Nobody wants it to go away tomorrow. We realize there's got to be a, a reasonable transition period. But I think that we all of us who who are sort of apologists for the industry and, and so dependent on this for our for our state revenues, including things we care about. I think we're going to be on the wrong side of history because I think there's a bigger existential crisis, which is climate change, which our kids and grandkids are going to be looking at us to solve. And, and nobody's saying shut those wells down tomorrow. I think what the, the tight wire that not just Governor Luhan Grisham, but the, the president and even um, 
Secretary elect or Secretary Degna, I guess she's secretary now. Colin's going to have to to walk is how do you um, help with that transition, but but also really push to to make this transition um, uh, quick as quickly as possible, not just for the good of the planet, but because our economy is so incredibly dependent on these fluctuating revenues. And we just got to we have to bite the bullet and make the change. And so I, I hope that we will all have the courage to do that, regardless of party, regardless of region. Appreciate that. That's the last word there. Uh, Thanks for having us, having these important conversations. Keep up with the show throughout the week on Facebook, Twitter, 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 you know it as, and Instagram. I want to thank you as always for joining us. We are nearly out of time for the podcast this week. I want to encourage you as always to follow the show throughout the week on our social media platforms. Just search for New Mexico and Focus on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. We're in all those places. Catch up on what we're doing each week. Give us suggestions. Tell us what you want to see us cover, what you have questions about. We'd love to have those conversations and uh, bring those to future programs. Also want to point you to a Facebook Live we did earlier today on Friday. It's a follow-up to one we did a couple weeks ago talking about the rise in violence against Asian American and Pacific Islanders here in the United States and in New Mexico. Of course, this is top of mind after the terrible shooting in Atlanta this week where eight people were killed. Six of them were Asian American women. And uh, again, it is just one of example of a growing number of cases, including here in New Mexico. You can think about the vandalism at the India Palace restaurant in Santa Fe as just one example. And so we had a, a great conversation about what it's like to be an Asian American or Pacific Islander here in New Mexico, what they're experiencing, how this discrimination has come forward, largely based on rhetoric on the national level about the COVID-19 pandemic and the sources of that virus. Um, It is unfortunate that we continue to have to have these conversations and don't seem to learn our lesson there, but we will have great information in that Facebook Live too about what we can all do to get involved in this uh, effort and this movement to uh, treat each all, all each other with dignity and respect, no matter of our backgrounds. And with that, we'll let Gene Grant close us out. He's got some more thoughts on this topic as well. But we'll be back again next Friday with much more for you, including a full wrap-up of the final outcomes of the legislative session. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy. Along with all of you, I was truly horrified by what transpired in Atlanta earlier this week that saw six Asian American women murdered among eight total. While not all the victims were Asian, there's already some home-based juries trying vainly to call this anything else than what it was, a targeted hate crime. If this was an isolated incident, it would be horrible enough, but the lit fuse of demonizing Asian people or Americans of Asian descent has reached its moment. Words matter especially for those in positions of influence. By any standard of fairness, our Asian American brothers and sisters have been quietly fighting a battle with few allies at their back. It's time for that to change. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.